Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this week marks the 80th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Arguably one of the most impactful attacks of the Second World War. But while it generated some short-term advantages for the Japanese, in the longer term, could we argue that it was a misguided failure? Joining me on the podcast to discuss this is Adrian Kerrison from the Imperial War Museum. Adrian is one of the excellent creators of the Second World War exhibitions, and he takes us deep into some of the strategic successes and failures of the attack, alongside some of those misguided political assumptions that informed the Japanese, that motivated them to attack Pearl Harbor. I know you're going to find this one fascinating, so please do go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and drop us a five-star review. And it was so great to see Warfare appear on many of your Spotify wrapped for 2021. So keep the listens up and remember, we want to hear your histories and your suggestions for future episodes so you can contact us directly via email on warfare at historyhit.com. But now here's Adrian Kerrison on Pearl Harbor. Hi, Adrian. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming on and chatting with us. Now, tell us a little about your day job, because it's a day job I think that everyone who's listening is going to be envious of. Yeah, so I'm a curator in the Second World War curatorial team at the Imperial War Museums. I'm based at IWM Duxford in Cambridgeshire, but I work for all the museums. And yeah, it's a very, very job. Like I do a lot of different things. So I work on acquiring new objects and material for the museum's collection. I work on exhibitions. So one of the most recent ones I've worked on is a new temporary Spitfire exhibition that we're putting on in December at Duxford. We do a lot of research. We write articles. We do podcast recordings like this. Yeah, it's, there's a lot to it, and it's a job I really enjoy. So you get to buy lots of amazing historical stuff. You get to show that stuff. And then, of course, you get to tell us these fascinating histories from the Second World War. One, which we're going to talk about today, the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, that surprise attack on the United States. It's one that was described by Roosevelt as a day that will live in infamy. That day that the United States of America was suddenly 
and deliberately attacked by the Empire of Japan. So take us through it, Adrian. What did this Japanese attack look like? Yeah, so at the time, just to give a little bit of context, Pearl Harbor is the base of the, the U.S. Pacific Fleet on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, which at the time is not a U.S. state, it's a U.S. territory. And the Pacific Fleet consists of nearly 100 vessels and is basically charged with defending the entire Pacific Ocean, which is a pretty big job. But it wasn't always at Pearl Harbor. It was moved there in 1940 specifically to deter Japanese aggression in China and Indochina and the whole sort of Pacific and Southeast Asia region. But rather than seeing it as a deterrent, Japan sees it more of pretty much a perfect target. So they assemble this large attack fleet that includes six aircraft carriers carrying nearly 400 aircrafts. And then they have several escorting warships as well. And the attack fleet leaves Japan on 26th November, maintaining strict radio silence all the way to their assembly point 230 miles north of Oahu. And the attack is divided into two waves. So the first attack wave is 177 aircraft. It's sometimes quoted as 183, but actually six aircraft don't manage to take off. And this wave is divided into three groups. So you have two groups of about 41 A6M Zero fighters, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, and 48 D3A Val dive bombers. And then the third group, which sort of provides the killer blow, is 40 B5N Kate torpedo bombers and then 48 Kate level bombers. And basically the attack starts at 7.48 a.m. on a beautiful Sunday in Hawaii. So it's obviously a very big shock, and the attack starts with the groups of fighters and dive bombers strafing and bombing the island's Army and Navy air bases, destroying parked aircrafts, hangars, and other infrastructure. So the point here is to render any ability to respond from the air absolutely impotent. The point is to make sure that no one is taking off, and if they have taken off, well, they're not going to land again at any point soon. That's exactly right, and one of the big problems for the Americans is that they had lined up a lot of their aircraft wingtip to wingtip on the runways and on the bases. And this was actually to prevent sabotage, so you can keep a better eye on them if they're closer together. But for the Japanese, this gives them a perfect target. It's basically just like mowing down dominoes. So that's the first part of the attack. And then shortly after, we're talking a few minutes later, the torpedo bombers make their runs and launch specially modified Type 91 torpedoes which are designed to work in shallow waters, which Pearl Harbor is, only about 40 feet deep. And they launch these against the eight battleships of an area of the harbor called Battleship Row. So four of the eight battleships, the Oklahoma, West Virginia, California, Nevada, these are hit by torpedoes. And then following the torpedo attack, the level bombers come in and drop these massive 800 kg armor-piercing bombs on the battleships, and there are a few direct hits. And one of the biggest direct hits is on the USS Arizona battleship. This gets a direct hit that hits its forward ammunition store, pretty much causing the ship to immediately explode, break into two, and sink. And this ends up killing pretty much everyone on board. So 1,200 officers and crew are killed sort of in an instant. And that makes up nearly half of all deaths suffered during the day. So a few of these bombs also hit the California Tennessee, Maryland, and the West Virginia, and the eight battleships after this attack, four are sunk. The Pennsylvania sort of gets away lightly because it's in dry dock, so it's not in the immediate vicinity 
the battleship row. So it gets a bit of a lucky escape there. And then the attack wave is mostly finished by about half eight in the morning. So then 20 minutes later, the second attack wave comes in. This is about 163 aircraft. Again, it's divided into three groups, but this time there's no torpedo bombers. So it's just level bombers with conventional smaller bombs, foul dive bombers, and zero fighters. So the main target of this attack is the airfields again. So they concentrate mostly on the airfields while some of the dive bombers go back to the ships in the harbor and sort of targets of opportunity, really. But this attack, it doesn't achieve the complete surprise that the first one does, obviously, so it's a bit less successful. The attack fleet suffers most of their casualties in this wave because the base is now in full alert. Anti-aircraft gunners are manning their guns. Some American aircraft are actually able to take to the air and intercept the Japanese aircraft. So this one's a bit less successful, and it pretty much ends by half nine in the morning. So at the end of the day, the damage is pretty devastating. There's more than 2,400 dead, 188 aircraft destroyed, many more damaged, and 19 warships in the harbor are sunk or damaged. So it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad sounds like an understatement to me, Adrian. This is a massive strategic surprise, as we call it in the historical literature. Not only are you clustering your planes together, but you're clustering your ships together as well. You're making these sitting ducks, easy targets, that are taking out and destroying pretty much a whole fleet here. Why is this such a surprise for the Americans? Because if we look back to 1940, then we can see that the British had already done a surprise attack, mounted a surprise naval attack on a sitting fleet in a port at Toronto Harbour. This was 1940. This was the attempts by the British to remove the threat of the Italian fleet. And, and it worked pretty successfully. So had the lessons not been learnt here, were the Americans not ready for this in any way at all? Well, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, just quickly to say, that attack was actually the inspiration for the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the, uh, using the torpedo bombers to destroy the fleet. The Americans did expect an attack on some of their installations, but they didn't expect it at Pearl Harbor. They'd been negotiating with Japan over the last few months, basically demanding that Japan end their occupation of French Indochina and their war against China as well. And of course, Japan refuses and negotiations break down. So on the 27th of November, all U.S. naval bases in the Pacific are warned that negotiations have ended and that they should be expecting an attack in the next few days. So... They definitely know that an attack is coming, but they don't think it's going to be on Pearl Harbor. They think it's going to be somewhere like the Philippines or Borneo, which is 5,000 miles away from Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor sees itself as so far away from what's happening in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. And what you mentioned about Taranto, Pearl Harbor's commanders think that this can't be done in Pearl Harbor because... Pearl Harbor's waters are too shallow for conventional torpedoes at the time to work because when they're dropped from the aircraft, they basically dive down 100, 150 feet before rising to the surface again. And because Pearl Harbor is only about 40 feet deep, any torpedo launched from an aircraft is going to just go straight into the mud of the harbor. And this is highlighted by the fact that they didn't even have anti-torpedo nets in the harbor. So they're very confident that an attack like this cannot work at the harbor. And there's definitely a sense of complacency on the base as well. Even on the day of the attack, early in the morning, there was a Japanese submarine detected near the harbor that was actually depth charged, but for some reason not a lot was thought about this. 
And then the first attack wave is actually seen on the base's radar screens, but the operator is told to ignore it because they think that it's a flight of B-17 bombers returning to the base. So yeah, they're not completely unprepared for it. They don't think it's gonna happen there. And of course, Japan are able to achieve complete tactical surprise, which is why the devastation is so great. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What are Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs, and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. This really is a perfect storm, isn't it? So why did the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor specifically? What did they plan to get from this attack? So the plan of the attack, it was basically a precursor to Japanese attacks and invasions in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. And this includes U.S. territories like the Philippines, Guam, Wake Island, British territories in Malay and Hong Kong, Thailand. And then they also planned on invading the Dutch East Indies and a lot of other territories in that area. But Japan is pretty sure that if they invade these territories, the U.S. is going to respond with force. So the idea behind Pearl Harbor is that if they severely cripple or even maybe destroy the U.S. Pacific fleet, it won't be able to come out into the Pacific 
and intervene in the Japanese offensives. So Japan will be able to complete their attacks, dig in, consolidate their gains, and yeah, they'll be good. But Japan also believes that by crippling or destroying the Pacific fleet, that's going to bring the U.S. back to the negotiating table and that they'll be able to somehow negotiate a peace that will allow Japan to keep some of their territorial gains. And they're also looking at U.S. public opinion towards the war, which in the last few years is against any intervention in Europe or the Pacific. And they're thinking that the U.S. public is not going to support or have the stomach to fight this war thousands of miles away across the Pacific in places that Americans had probably never heard of. And they're also seeing any conflict with the U.S. is very short term. And this really informs their targeting priority of the harbor. So like you said, they target everything that can provide an immediate defense, such as the aircrafts and, of course, the warships. But because they're not thinking long term, they don't initially target the fuel depots and repair facilities on the islands, which, of course, over the next year are used to bring the Pacific fleet back to strength so that it can mount offensive operations in the Pacific. So it really it's a preemptive strike. They feel that they have no chance of aggressively pursuing their territorial aims without knocking out the U.S. Pacific fleet. So, yeah, that's the reasoning behind the attack. It's a really interesting point. I've never thought of it like that before. By targeting the military hardware, you can almost look at this as being a short-term strategy, immediate gains to put a hammer blow, a major blow against the Americans so they can coerce them and get them back to the table, perhaps. How successful are the Japanese in this? Yeah, well, Yamamoto, uh, Admiral Yamamoto, who pretty much organized the attack, thinks that they don't have a chance after six months, so they're really banking on this negotiation taking place. But yeah, the short-term impact is that they do obviously manage to somewhat cripple the Pacific fleet. The devastation seems very bad at first, but in the end, it's not as bad sort of as it looks, I guess. And of course, their drive across Southeast Asia and the Pacific is pretty much unimpeded, of course, apart from the defenders of the places that they're attacking. And it does work because the U.S. are unable to mount a major offensive against the Japanese until about mid-1942, so like six months, like Yamamoto predicted. But by this time, Japan has captured all of the territories mentioned before, and they've also captured Dutch East Indies, British Burma, Singapore, and New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. But the biggest problem for Japan is that they were not able to attack the Pacific Fleet's three aircraft carriers because they were fortunately away on maneuvers during the attack. And Japan had obviously known about the importance of aircraft carriers because obviously they'd use them for this attack on Pearl Harbor. But their focus on the battleships was a miscalculation. They thought that a war in the Pacific would be fought by these massive warships when in reality it came to be dominated by aircraft carriers. And this is borne out by the fact that the Enterprise and the Lexington, which are two of the carriers that are not hit during the attack and they're part of the Pacific fleet, they go on to take part in the early U.S. victories in the Pacific. So the Battle of the Coral Sea and the Battle of Midway, which are both actually pretty big turning points in the Pacific War. And long term, most of the damage caused by the attacks is rectified. So because they didn't hit these repair facilities, they're able to almost get straight back to work repairing the ships and the infrastructure in the harbor. And the shallow water of the harbor, although they designed these torpedoes that would work, in the shallow waters, 
it means that the ships don't actually sink that far down, so they're much more easy to recover. And six of the eight battleships attacked are eventually repaired and resume operations in the Pacific. So the Nevada is repaired as early as April 1942. So it kind of shows you how quickly they're able to get back into the swing of things. And that goes for many of the other smaller warships hit as well. So yeah, sort of like Yamamoto predicted, it only really benefits Japan for about five or six months. And then the U.S. is able to mount these larger offensive operations in the Pacific, such as Guadalcanal. And we all know how the Pacific War ends, so it obviously doesn't work out for them long term. But the biggest impact, of course, is that the U.S. is now in the war. They declare war on Japan the following day. And in America, public support for isolationism pretty much disappears. The military begins its rapid expansion, and U.S. industry is mobilized to produce war material. So it's a massive fatal miscalculation for Japan. So this was a military miscalculation, but also fundamentally a political miscalculation. Do we know when this dawned on the Japanese, that they'd got their political reading of the mood in the United States so desperately wrong? Hard to say. I think it's probably when battles like the Coral Sea in Midway happened, because these inflict massive losses on the Japanese Navy. And Midway in particular is sort of this turning point in the Pacific War. So I think by that point, they realize, okay, we're in this for the long haul. We're going to have to fight this three-war, brutal, bloody campaign in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So I think, yeah, around then is probably when they realize that <laughs> it was a big mistake. Well, it allows Roosevelt to launch that declaration of war within a matter of days, and I suppose just brings anyone who is a doubter on side. And then there's just real controls over some of the propaganda that's going out from the US Navy as well, just pushing out there to show that the US is going to have this victory. And it's all centering around Pearl Harbor, isn't it? It's all centering around revenge for that heinous surprise attack. Yeah, absolutely. It gets the American people on side because before this, they weren't sure about going to war in Europe or in the Pacific. So this attack on America you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people volunteering for military service in the days after. So it's a big turning point for public opinion in the States. So take us through, as we come up to this anniversary, what is the legacy of Pearl Harbor? What things should we look to here? I think we just need to recognize it as one of the most pivotal moments of the Second World War. It triggers the US to enter the war, bringing its manpower and industry to the Allied war effort. And for Britain in particular, for those of us who live here, it's a huge deal for Britain at the time. Churchill had been desperate for them to enter the war. He wasn't really sure how long Britain could hold out against Germany. But the Pearl Harbor attacks pretty much sealed this and made the outcome of the war inevitable with the U.S. joining the Allied war effort. And I would really encourage anyone interested in Pearl Harbor to check out our new Second World War galleries at IWM London. So we actually have a piece of the USS Arizona on display. And just remember that the USS Arizona was a ship that was hit by the massive armor-piercing bomb in which 1,200 naval personnel lost their lives. And this is actually the first time that a piece of the battleship has been displayed outside of the USA. So yeah, we're very honored to be able to share it with our visitors. And also, if you want to learn more about the reasons behind the attack on Pearl Harbor, I know that we touched on it briefly in this podcast, but we go into a lot of the sort of political thinking 
and strategic thinking on the Imperial War Museum's YouTube channel where we have a video on the attacks. Well, lots of legacies, lots still to learn and lots to see. And I think for me there, one thing that struck home was that global impact of Pearl Harbor. Like you say, Churchill is in his desperate, multi-layered effort, whether it's through diplomatic, it's through the establishment of certain narratives through the Ministry of Information. It's through key agents in America trying to get Roosevelt on board as quickly as possible. This is Churchill hanging on, keeping Britain hanging on for dear life until he can finally convince the Americans to come on board. And like you say, this is where we can see that global impact of Pearl Harbor. If anything, the attack at that point could be argued it saves Britain at some point, doesn't it really? Yeah, and I mean, Churchill was sort of getting there and getting the U.S. sent to the war, so he was able to negotiate the destroyers for bases deal, and then you have Lend-Lease, and then you have uh, U.S. warships escorting British convoys in the Atlantic, so they are getting there, but yeah, Pearl Harbor definitely seals the entrance of America into the war, which it makes the outcome of the war inevitable with their manpower and industry. It is that catalyst, isn't it? That catalyst that was needed at that point. And of course, that's led to many conspiracy theories that we can go into in another podcast, Adrian. Uh, Yes, yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to get down and see the new Second World War exhibition at the Imperial War Museum. And I'm at Duxford in March, I think. So we'll have to grow a beer over then and talk some more about all of this. Definitely. Yeah, I'd be looking forward to that. Great. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thanks for having me. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.